All right, Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 to 4, verse 1. A moment ago I said this was an interesting passage. It's unique within the book of Colossians. It stands alone as a unit. Truth be told, it's a controversial passage because of the day and the age and the culture in which we live. And I will tell you that a couple of weeks ago, I was talking with Jake and we were planning Sunday mornings and I said, Jake, you're gonna get to preach and it's coming up and I'll give you a choice. You can preach on the Sunday after Thanksgiving and you can look at the passage that Jake did a great job preaching on last week if you were here for that or watched online or you can preach the following Sunday, the first Sunday of December, and you can preach the passage that talks about wives submitting to husbands and slaves and all the rest of it. And Jake said, you know, I think I'll take November 28th in the previous passage. And uh, he said it was just because he wanted to preach once, not twice. And he got to preach one sermon, uh, not twice last week. This is an interesting passage, and it is controversial today where we live and when we live. And let me just say this, over the last several months, I have told you numerous times that one of the greatest challenges that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to face already now and into the future is a question of anthropology. Is the question of what is a human being? And more importantly than that, not just how do we define what a human being is, but who gets to decide how human beings ought to live their lives? Those are very controversial, very debated questions today. And if you have ears to hear what the scripture's saying this morning as we look at Colossians 3:18 to 4:1, God Almighty is saying something very direct very simple, very plain about who we are and more specifically how we ought to live our lives. And so I pray this morning that we have ears to hear what the Lord is saying to us. We'll start with the big idea of Colossians. Colossians is a book about the supremacy of Christ. We just sang about that when we sang Silent Night. In the very end of the third verse, we sang that Jesus was Lord at his birth. When you sing that, whether you mean it in your heart or not, what you are outwardly saying is, from the very beginning of his conception, of his birth, of his existence on planet Earth, from eternity past to the incarnation to eternity future, Jesus Christ is supreme. He's Lord. That's the driving message of the book of Colossians. Now let me just say one very obvious thing, but today very controversial thing. If Jesus is supreme, preeminent, first place, the top dog, then he has the right to tell human beings how to live their lives. People don't like that today. People don't want to be told how they ought to live their lives. But if you believe what the book of Colossians is telling us, that the Lord Jesus Christ is supreme, it is an obvious conclusion to follow that up by saying, if that's true, he therefore has the right to tell me 
how to live my life and how not to live my life. So Paul, in the previous section that we've just come out of, he concluded by saying whatever we do ought to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is Colossians 3, 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So we've been looking at this chapter, Colossians 3, where Paul is beginning to apply the supremacy of Jesus. And the way that he applied it is he says, if you are a believer, you believe the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ, there are certain things that you should put off, like taking off dirty clothing. You should put these things away. You should take them off. You take sin off. And there's other things that you ought to put on. You ought to put on obedience. You ought to put on Christ-likeness. And he summarizes all of that in verse 17 when he says, whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything. Are we covering enough ground here? Whatever you do, word or deed, everything that you do, Let it be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You could say, if you wanted to explain that phrase, that last phrase, you could say, to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. To do something in his name doesn't mean you just slap a Christian bumper sticker on it or you say in Jesus' name at the end of your prayer. It means that you are concerned about his name, his reputation, his glory, and you do everything, whatever you do, Everything you do, you do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and for his glory. Now, in our passage, Paul begins to get specific about what it is that we need to put on in our human relationships. So Colossians 3, 18 to 4, 1, what does it look like to put on obedience in three different areas of life, in marriage, in parenting, and in work? And if you're reading a study Bible or you're reading a commentary, Bible scholars call this passage and other passages like it a household code, meaning this is how the household ought to function. When you think about the relationship with your spouse, when you think about the relationship with your children, when you think about the relationship with your employer or your employees, this is how life ought to function. So the big idea of this passage is very, very simple. For Christian people, it's not controversial at all. It's very obvious. The supremacy of Jesus gives Jesus the right to define the nature of our relationships. He's supreme, we're not. We don't get to define our relationships willy-nilly any way we want to. Rather, we submit to the supremacy of Jesus and he gets to determine the nature of of our relationships. Now I just want you to see some of the numbers in this passage because I think the numbers reveal some of the emphasis in this passage. We're looking at nine verses. Nine verses. Paul talks about three kinds of relationships. Husband, wife, number one. Parent, child, number two. Boss, employee, number three. Seven times in this passage, Paul refers to Jesus as Lord or master, depending on your translation. Lord, Lord, Lord. He says it over and over and over again. This is the Holy Spirit 
inspiring Paul, reminding us that all of our human relationships must be governed by the lordship of Jesus Christ. All of our human relationships fall under his supremacy and his sovereignty. He and he alone has the right to determine the nature of human relationships. Now, let's start off talking about rules. Everybody likes rules. And you chuckle lightly because in reality, nobody likes rules. But this is a truth of life. In life, if you want to have fun and you want to experience joy, rules are necessary. Not helpful, necessary. Let's think about this in several areas of life. Let's talk about sports. In 1897, Dr. James Naismith wrote down the 13 original rules of basket, space, ball. 13 rules. And he said, this is how you play the game. Now, it's been a long time since 1897. We've changed some of the rules. We've adjusted some of the rules. We've added some rules. But we still have rules. And when you follow the rules, basketball is a fun game. It's a beautiful game when it's played correctly. But what happens if you take a bunch of fifth, sixth, seventh grade boys and you throw them out here on the court and you give them a ball and no adult is out there to referee and you just turn them loose to do whatever they want to do? It's not basketball. Whatever it is, it's not basketball. It's Lord of the Flies, chaos. It's wrestling. It's clotheslines. It's tripping. It's you cheated. It's that's not fair. You can't. Who said? I thought this is what. It's just chaos. Complete and total chaos and confusion. There's no fun in it. There's no joy in it. Think about music. Music has rules. When you read a piece of music, those are the rules. And the rules are telling you, depending on whether you're singing or you're playing or whatever you're doing, you make noise right here, but not right here. And this is the kind of noise you make right here. Don't make that kind of noise, make this kind of noise right here. And then you gotta stop and then you gotta start. It's rules. Now we could turn you loose after the service is over. We could let you sit in Logan's drum cage. We could let you sit at Mark's piano. You could bang around on the keys. You could get the sticks and make a bunch of noise. It's not gonna be fun for anybody. You don't know the rules. You're not playing according to the rules. But when you follow the rules, you come to church and you say, oh, the band sounded great this morning. It's because they followed all the rules. They played all the right notes in the right times in the right places. Rules don't make it miserable. They actually make it enjoyable. One more example. Let's talk about the world of art. It's very popular today to say there are no rules in art and that anything can be art, but you know and I know if anything is art, then nothing is art. So let me tell you a story about a painter. His name is Jans, and he lives in, uh, in the Netherlands, and he was paid $84,000 to create a piece of art for a Danish state museum. He took the check. He cashed the check, and he had delivered to the museum a blank white canvas. Do you know what he titled this work of art? Take the money and run. That's the name of the, the piece of art. But you look at that, look, you can be uppity and nose up in the air, art connoisseur, and you can say, oh, 
our backwards preacher doesn't appreciate fine art. You can say that all you want. That's not art. It's not art. If everything's art, then nothing's art. You've got to have rules. You've got to have rules about color and balance and light and movement and perspective and all the things that you learn in sixth grade art class. You need all of those rules to actually enjoy art. Otherwise, you just stand like these two people and you pretend like you're really enlightened and you say, well, this is a wonderful piece of art. $84,000. I'm in the wrong business. $84,000. In life, you need rules. If you want to enjoy life, if you want to have fun, if you want to know joy, you need rules. You and I, right now, are living in the middle of a radical cultural experiment. You maybe didn't know you were in the middle of an experiment, but you are. It's a radical cultural experiment designed on many levels to remove all rules, all boundaries, all restrictions. And it's being done in the name of freedom, autonomy, fun, fulfillment. All it's resulting in is chaos and confusion. In life, you need rules. If you read a passage like this passage, and your first instinct is to push back and to bow up and to be defiant and to say, well, that doesn't really mean what it says or is just applied back then, it doesn't apply today. And you're trying, your innate instinctive reaction is to get out from under the rules. You need to recalibrate your heart. And you just need to remind yourself that doesn't work in any area of life. It doesn't work in sports, it doesn't work in art, it doesn't work in music, it doesn't work anywhere. You need rules to provide a structure so that life can be enjoyable and life can be meaningful. When you lose the rules, you lose everything. So don't approach this passage and naturally just say, ah, rules, rules about marriage, rules about parenting, rules about work, I don't want anything to do with it. But listen to what God is saying to his people in this passage. Now, the passage itself is pretty straightforward. We're gonna walk through it pretty quickly is not a particularly complicated passage. There's not a lot of nuance here that I need to explain to you. So first of all, let's talk about marriage. Paul's pretty direct about how this ought to work. He says, wives are called to submit to their husbands and husbands are called to love their wives. That's just straight out of verse 18 and verse 19. Wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. That's marriage. Now let's talk about parenting. It's equally simple. Children are called to obey their parents and specifically fathers are called not to provoke their children. Now the word you see in verse 20, children obey your parents covers father and mother. So there's a responsibility for children to obey mom and dad equally and for mom and dad to expect obedience. But the word in verse 21 is specifically directed to fathers to say, fathers, I know you fathers, I know myself, you're prone to take it too far. 
You're prone to do it the wrong way. So do not provoke. Some of your translations say do not exasperate your children. Do not frustrate them in your discipline. So that's marriage, that's parenting. Now work. Bond servants called to obey their earthly masters. Masters called to treat their bond servants justly and fairly. Again, it's pretty straightforward. The last part of this uh, passage is a little bit longer. There's a little more elaboration. There's probably reasons for that in the context of Colossae, but the command is pretty straightforward. Bond servants, obey your masters. Masters, be just and fair to your servants or to your slaves. Now, that's a hotbed of mess in the year 2021 to just throw that out into our cultural climate. So let me just make a couple of comments, not everything that we could say, but just a couple of comments about each of those relationships. We'll start with marriage. We'll start with this instruction that Paul starts with, wives submit to your husbands. People don't like that word today. People think that's ridiculous. People say, well, this is where Paul just goes off the rail. Paul hates women. Paul's anti-woman. Paul's not for women's rights. He's not with it. He's backwards. He's primitive. Understand this. When Paul said, wives, submit to your husbands, he is not saying, wives, you're just a dirty old doormat. It's not what he's saying. He is not saying, and really when I say this, I'm speaking to husbands, he is not saying wives have to do whatever their husbands tell them to do. It's not what he's saying here. It's not what he's talking about here. When Paul says, wives submit to your husbands, he's not saying, wife, if you're experiencing abuse, I'm sorry about it. You just need to grin and bear it and tough it out. Absolutely no, that's not what he's saying. It's not what he's saying when he says submit. People twist this. Usually men twist this. They get some kind of ego, some kind of power trip. They detach it from what follows in this passage. And they just say, ah, submit. Just be a doormat. Do whatever I tell you to do. Don't complain about this. Don't complain about that. He's not even saying that a wife can't make a decision or can't be involved in decisions or can't be a leading voice in decisions within the home. This is what he's saying. Not saying all that stuff. He is saying, wives, when you enter into a Christian marriage, you should enter with the predisposition to follow the leadership of your husband. That is what he's saying, and I realize that's not popular today, but that is very clearly what he's saying in this passage. It's very clearly what Paul says in the parallel code in Ephesians 5. And in both of those passages, Paul says, wives, this is what you're called to do. Husbands, this is what you're called to do. Love your wife. And Paul details it out a little more specifically in Ephesians 5. What he says in Ephesians 5 is, husbands, the love that you have for your wife ought to mirror the love that Christ has for his church. The love that Jesus has for his church is sacrificial. It's a serving love. It's not a dominating love. It's a serving love. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. Husbands are called to lay down their lives in loving their wives. Sacrificially. It's going to cost a husband. 
to love his wife in that way. It's got to be a sanctifying love that makes her more like Christ. And Paul couples these two things together and he's just saying this. Here's how it works best. Wives, you're called to submit to your husband's leadership, to follow his leadership. Husbands, you're called to serve your wife humbly like Christ served the church and gave his life for her. And you're both to go into marriage not bowing up against rules and restrictions and things that are gonna make you miserable, but saying, no, this is how it's going to work best. So that's a little bit about marriage. Let's talk about parenting. Paul says in this passage, children, obey your parents in the Lord. When you look at the parallel passage in Ephesians 5, Paul quotes the Ten Commandments. He, com- he quotes Exodus 20, verse 12, that says, honor your father and your mother. Okay, that's the broad principle in the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and your mother. Looking around the room, I think most of you have father and mother or had a father and mother. And whether they're alive today or they're not alive today, this is one of God's commandments to his people. You should honor them. You should show honor to them. Paul specifically applies it to children in this passage. And he says, children, how do you honor your father and your mother? You obey them. So literally right now, I'm looking at the room and I'm looking for children, teenagers, young people, anyone who's still cashing your parents' checks. Okay, some kids over here, there's one in the back, some of my kids right here, taking notes on this. Okay, there's some back there in the middle, I see Lane, Cannon, okay, kids. Some of you hiding in the balcony, I can see you up there. Children, obey your parents. That's the call. If you're gonna come to church, you're gonna say, I believe in Jesus. This is one of the things that followers of Jesus do. Children obey their parents. Parents, parents, expect your children to obey. Every time you go out in public, you hear parents talk to children and they have absolutely no expectation that the kid is going to obey them. You hear it in their voice. You see it in their body language. You know it. They don't expect it. Parents expect your children to obey. When they don't, you discipline them. There's a lot in the book of Proverbs about how you do that and why you do that. Corey talked about this. He preached on this just a couple of weeks ago. The role and the responsibility of parents in disciplining their children. Fathers, now I'm looking at men in the room and I'm looking at myself. You and I are prone to do this the wrong way. And we're prone to exasperate our kids. And we're prone to frustrate them and to provoke them in this discipline. So Paul says to fathers specifically, he singles out dads and he says, don't do it the wrong way. You've gotta discipline them and you've gotta expect them to obey, but don't do it in a way that provokes them and frustrates them. Now, let's be honest about something. We are living in the middle of a cultural experiment in a society that for multiple generations has not had the expectation that children would obey parents. 
You live in that world right now. You live in a society that does not have the expectation that children will respect authority and obey parents. How do you think that's working out as an experiment? How do you think it's playing out in our criminal justice system? How do you think it's playing out in our schools? Have you been on a campus lately? How do you think it's playing out when any one group of people in our society on any given day feels slighted and oppressed for heaven's sake and says the response to what I'm experiencing is gonna be to loot, burn, and pillage? We're living in the middle of a vast cultural experiment where multiple generations of children have been raised up without this expectation that they will respect authority and obey parents. Maybe, just maybe, Paul's on to something when he talks about instructions to parents and children. These young people, they're at fault. They're at fault. People are responsible for their own sins. But they're also living out what has not been taught to them. So that's marriage and that's parenting. Let's talk about work. This is another controversial part of the passage where Paul talks about slavery. And people lose their mind today because they read a passage like this and they say, why didn't Paul say anything negative against slavery? And it's true. In Paul's day, in the Roman Empire, first century, slavery was just part of life. I think it's important for us to realize that for most of human history, for most people who have lived on this earth, some form of slavery has been part of life. We are the exception rather than the rule. Even living today in this country, we're the exception rather than the rule. So when you read your New Testament and the New Testament talks about slavery, let me just encourage you to keep a couple of things in the back of your mind. Number one, when you look at the economy of first century ancient Rome, it's very, very different than the economy in the United States of America in the year 2021. Some of the things that you end up comparing across cultures and across time and across geography don't just line up for an easy comparison one-to-one. You're not always comparing apples to apples, so just keep that in mind. Secondly, keep this in mind. As Americans, when we hear the word slavery, we immediately think about the past in our nation. But slavery in the Roman Empire wasn't exactly like slavery in our nation. You can't just equate the two as if they were the same. Now, I'm not trying to say to you it wasn't slavery. It was. What Paul's talking about here is people who were owned and controlled by others. But it's not the same situation as what we experienced in this nation. Many people in the Roman Empire ended up as slaves, many people, because they racked up a huge debt and there was no credit card company to finance it. And the Roman Empire, rather than saying, well, we're just gonna send you to a debtor's prison and feed you five, three meals a day and let you exercise whenever you want and have a nice warm bed, said, you're a slave. You gotta pay that debt. It was a very common situation. Many slaves in ancient Rome, we know this from, from ancient sources, were highly educated. Many slaves were given incredible responsibilities within their household. So it was not exactly the same situation as what we've experienced in this country. One more thing I would just have you remember is that it was Christian people 
who eventually pushed for the complete abolition of the slave trade. It wasn't Muslims that did that. It wasn't secular atheists who pushed for that. It was Christian people who eventually said, these, these people are people. We're not going to do this anymore. So you just keep that in mind when you're reading about this bond servant master stuff. And this is what I want you to understand. When you come to this part of the passage, what Paul's talking about is your livelihood. How do you, how do you make a living? There were ways that you did that in ancient Rome in the first century. And there's ways that you do that today. Some of you, I look around the room, you make a living because you own a business. Looking around the room, some of you make a living like me because you work here at this church. Some of you make a living because you have worked all of your life and you saved and now you're living off that savings. They didn't really have that sort of situation for very many people in ancient Rome. Some of you make a living because you go to work for someone else and they tell you when to be there and what to do and they control you while you're on the clock. How do you make a living? How do you provide for your family? How do you put food on the table? How do you put clothes on the backs of your children? That's what Paul's talking about here. And his advice is not do the bare minimum to get your paycheck and then get out of there. Look what he says in verse 22. He says, you ought to work hard and obey, not just when the boss is looking. Do you think Odessa would be a different place if people worked hard all the time even when the boss wasn't looking? What about what Paul says in verse 22, 23, and 24? He keeps coming back to it when he says, you're working for the Lord. You've got to fear the Lord. You've got to work as if you're serving Jesus Christ. Do you think your lunch experience in about 30 minutes would be different if the people working there worked as if they were serving the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you think life would be different in a work environment if people had that mindset? That's what Paul's calling people to. Look what Paul says in verse 24. He says, the Lord will give you an inheritance. In other words, your paycheck is not the end-all, be-all. Your 401k is not the end-all, be-all. The Lord Jesus has something far more valuable stored up for you, an inheritance kept in heaven. Look what he says to masters in verse 25. Masters, bosses, you're not supreme. You're not the top dog. You're not preeminent. Jesus is. The boss has a boss. The master has a master. And you ought to treat the people under you accordingly. Now, let's just hit pause for a second. Let's try to have one moment of honesty. I know that somebody has asked you in the hall this morning how you are. You said fine, and it was a lie. We lie at church all the time. We present ourselves in a certain way as if everything's good and great, and we give the Sunday school answers. Let's have one moment of honesty. Left to ourselves, apart from God's grace in our lives, and apart from a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, there is not one of us who wants to do 
any of these things. And it's not just a matter of, well, he said this to the wives, I don't like that, or he said this about slaves, I don't. The what is almost immaterial. It's the very fact that someone would have the audacity to tell us what to do. That's what we don't like. All the way back in the Garden of Eden, there was one rule, just one. And Adam and Eve decided, yeah, we don't like the rule. One rule. One thing you're not allowed to do. Well, that's the one thing we're going to do. That's who we are as human beings. That feeling that wells up within you when somebody, even a divine somebody, tells you what to do, that feeling where you just want to push back and say, no. That feeling when God draws a line in the sand and you walk right up to the line and you look him in the eye and you step right across the line. You say, I know that's the line, but I'm going to cross the line. The Bible has a word for that. Sin. We usually think about sin as something we do or something we say. But sin is most basically who we are. We are sinful people. We do not want to be told what to do. And every last one of us, when told what to do, will be defiant and will be rebellious. There are people in the world today, there's a lot of them, there are a lot of voices in the world today trying to tell you what's wrong with the world. That's like 99.9% of our civil discourse right now. What is wrong with the world? And there's all sorts of answers out there. Can I tell you what some of the answers are? There are people out there who say, the problem with the world is the patriarchy. Men are the problem. Blame it all on the men. There's people out there who say, the problem in the world is gun rights. That's the problem. If we can fix that, fix everything else. There's people in the world who say, the problem is unequal opportunity for every person. If everyone just had the same opportunity, then everything would be okay. There's people in the world who say, the problem is unequal outcomes. Not only do we want people to have the same opportunities, but we want to guarantee the same outcome for every person, whatever opportunity they have. Any inequality, any disparity, that's the problem. There's people who want you to blame the Democrats. There's people who want you to blame the Republicans. There's people who want you to blame the Supreme Court. There's people who want you to blame Congress. There is a lot of finger pointing going on about what is the problem in the world. And the Bible points the finger at you and me and says you're the problem. It's that thing in you the Bible calls sin, that doesn't like rules and restrictions and that refuses to listen and refuses to obey. You know, the Bible says that God did something about that problem. We're celebrating that at Christmas, if you didn't know. We're celebrating the birth of Jesus. He was named Jesus because he came to save his people from their sins. We've read about that in Colossians chapter two. If you look over Colossians two, verse 14, 
It's talking about Jesus being crucified and it says he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Our record of debt, our sin debt, was nailed to the cross where Jesus paid the penalty so that we could be forgiven and brought into his kingdom and have the hope of an inheritance. Listen, these rules for wives and husbands and parents and kids, bosses, employees, slaves, masters, whatever you wanna talk about, these rules are not put in the Bible so that you know how to be a good enough person to go to heaven when you die. You're not a good enough person, and neither am I. You're a sinner, so am I. We don't want anything to do with God's rules left to ourselves and apart from his grace and his goodness in our lives. We bow up, we break these rules, we all fall short. The good news of Christmas is that God himself came and he died on a cross so that your record of sin, your sin debt could be paid. If you have never trusted in the good news about Jesus Christ, that's the first thing that you need to worry about this morning. Not this stuff about wives and husbands and parents and all the rest of it. You just need to understand and agree with God. God, I'm a sinful person. It really doesn't matter what kind of rules you would give me. I don't want anything to do with them. I have fallen short of your glory. But I'm thankful that Jesus Christ came to pay the penalty for my sins. Some of you, that's what you need to take away from this message this morning. Is these rules, any other rules... You've blown it. Jesus came to give you life. He came to die on a cross in your place that you could be welcomed into his kingdom. Now some of you have trusted in Jesus. In fact, I would guess Sunday morning, the majority of us have trusted in what Jesus did for us on the cross. And so the question is, what do we do with a passage like this? Let me give you just four thoughts of application quickly as we close. Number one, for the believer... This is for the Christian. It's not for the non-Christian, it's for the Christian. All of life is to be lived under the authority of Jesus Christ. All of life. That's the heart of a Christian person. The heart of a Christian person is not, I'm gonna live like the world while I'm on the earth, but the cool thing is when I die, I get to go to heaven. That's the mindset of a lost person who loves the world and who thinks that their self is supreme, not the Lord Jesus Christ. When you come to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, you are acknowledging his supremacy and you are saying, you are a good savior and I'm trusting in what you've done to, to bring me into your kingdom and I wanna live my life under your authority and under your rule. All of life, the Christian has a desire, ought to have the desire that all of life is lived under the authority of Jesus. Secondly, for the believer, the definition and the dynamics of marriage are not up for debate. In this passage, when Paul talks about marriage, he says a lot without even saying it. He assumes a certain definition of marriage and that definition is one man and one woman united together. The wife going in to follow the leadership of her husband, the husband going in to lead his wife, by loving her the way Christ loved the church. The definition of marriage is assumed. 
the dynamics of marriage are spelled out here in submitting and in loving. We live in a day and age where people have largely rejected God's right to define what marriage is. This is my plea to you. Hold to the way that God defines marriage and hold to how God says it works best. What a strange thing it would be for Christian people to say, we wanna cling to the definition, one man and one woman, but we're gonna figure out how it works on our own. We don't like this sacrificial love stuff and this submitting to your husband stuff. We're a little more advanced than that. Look, this is a, this is a package deal. God gets to define it, and God gets to tell us how it works best. So it's not up for debate when it comes to the definition and the dynamics of marriage. Thirdly, for the believer, for the Christian, raising children involves teaching respect for authority. Maybe the greatest thing that you can do for your kids or your grandkids is teach them to have a healthy respect for authority. If you do not teach a child to respect authority in the home or in the church or in their school or in the workplace, it is highly unlikely that they will be disposed to have any respect for authority as an adult. And it is highly unlikely that they will have any respect for God's authority. It's the greatest, maybe the greatest thing that a parent can do for a child is to teach them to have a respect for authority on the most basic, simple levels so that when they grow up, they have a respect for God's authority. Lastly, for the believer, our secular jobs are part of the way that we honor the Lord Jesus. And I put secular in quotes because I didn't want to insert a winking emoji Okay, what I'm saying to you is there are no secular jobs. No one has a secular job. And I understand the distinction that we make sometimes. You look at me and you say, yeah, but you, you work at the church. You do church stuff, God stuff all the time. And I come to the church, but then I go do other stuff, secular stuff, just world stuff in the real world. So understand the distinction that people are trying to make sometimes, but if you understand what Paul is saying in this passage, no one has a secular job. The Christian is called to work in whatever it is they do for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where all of this passage really kind of boils back to Colossians 3 verse 17. And I'll just read it one more time as we close. Whatever you do, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him.